Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum, the author of Atomic Anna, and I am so excited to be here today to welcome you to the very first episode of Check This Out at the Howe Library. That's right. Check these books out. We are a brand new series sponsored by the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you, huge thank you. And I am here to bring you books and authors that I think you need to be reading and talking about. My first guest is the unbelievable Jonathan Escoffrey. Hello, Jonathan, welcome. Hello, very happy to be here. Thank Amazing. You for Amazing. <laughs> so this is your debut, If I Survive You. And this book is unbelievable. To say that you've been getting attention and press and praise is understatement, <laughs> right? <laughs> you are already long-listed for the National Book Award among many, many prestigious honors and shout-outs. Congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a dream come true, you know. Yeah, staying I mean, humble, staying grounded though. We're good, <laughs> like full spread in the New York Times, photo shoot and everything. New Yorker, you are everywhere. I'm a, I'm a few places, yeah. yeah. It's amazing and so well-deserved. So for those of you that don't know Jonathan, I'm going to read his bio quickly just to give you a sense of what he's been doing before that he's taken over the literary world here. So Jonathan Escoffrey is the recipient of the 2020 Plimpton Prize for Fiction, a 2020 NEA Literature Fellowship, and the 2020 ASME Award for Fiction. His fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, American Short Fiction, Prairie Spooner, Agni, Passages North, Ziziva, and Electric Literature. We're still going, hang on. He is a fellow in the University of Southern California's PhD in Creative Writing and Literature Program. And in 2021, he was awarded a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford. He was born and raised in Miami, Florida. And I know him, of course, from Grub Street in Boston. And we go way back to the days when we were walking the halls, hoping one day we would publish books. And here absolutely. he is. Here he is. Yep, absolutely. We were, we were staring at the author saying, I want to be you one day. And here we are. We are, we are <laughs> yes. the published authors now. <laughs> yes, we were. So I'm so excited about this book. Can you tell us what is this beautiful book about? Well, it's about a family of Jamaicans who moved from Kingston to Miami in the late 1970s. And the reason that they moved is that there was a lot of, in reality, uh, uh, political turmoil and a lot of violence spilling out into the streets in Jamaica. So for the safety of the family, the two parents, Topper and Sonia, uh, decide to move their infant son, Delano, to Miami. And it's in Miami that they have their second son, who's named Trelawney. And it happens that Trelawney get, kind of gets the most uh, page space and attention in the book because he is on this journey to figure out who he's going to be in the world and you know whether or not he is American enough or Jamaican enough or how he can find uh, belonging and love both within the family and uh, out in the outside world. Yeah, I love it. We follow you... him, I should say, we follow him on a lot of uh, really odd jobs that he does. And uh, that was a lot of fun to write about as well. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to read about too. So this is described as, I guess, a novel in short stories. And I have to say, I hear that description a lot, but it actually, the first time it ever made sense was your book. It wasn't like <laughs> you were actually just trying to string together random stories. This is actually, right, short stories, but sort of scenes from a family is more how I read the book. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I set out to at one point write a novel and I wanted the novel to have standalone chapters that I could 
publish in the Parish Review and places like that. And then once I realized I had a bunch of stories, um, the, the novel idea that I had wasn't exactly working. So it was when I just looked up and said, hey, you've got a bunch of stories about the same family, about the same kind of conflicts. Um, I, I decided to put it all back together again. And that's how it kind of took shape in the, in the way that it, that, it, that it does and did. And I, I matched my book. So I thought it was important <laughs> that I hold it up myself, <laughs> which I, I, I only halfway meant to do. I mean, I think it was brilliant. You should always match your book cover. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could turn to the opening page um, and just read that very first paragraph for us so we could hear your voice. Um, you know, you start with, it begins. It begins with, what are you? Hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine, younger probably. You'll be asked again throughout junior high and high school, then out in the world, in strip clubs, in food courts, over the phone and at various menial jobs. The askers are expectant. They demand immediate gratification. Their question lifts you slightly off your pre-adolescent toes, tilting you, not just because you don't understand it, but because even if you did understand this question, you wouldn't yet have an answer. Thank you. Um, I just, I loved this opening. I thought this was unbelievable. This question, what are you? Right? right, stuck with me through the whole book. Felt like that was the book. That was the theme. Can you talk right. about it? <laughs> yeah, it's a question that Trelawney is kind of assaulted with from the early age of of nine, where people are having this response where they want to um, be able to put him in one box or another that might make them feel comfortable in their uh, interactions with him. I think at least that's how uh, I've come to understand this kind of phenomenon. I'm, I'm calling in from Miami today where, where I don't live, but I'm visiting my family and growing up in Miami, uh, it's a question I got asked a, a lot. And, you know, I might say, well, I was born in the US, so I guess what I am is American. They would shake their heads and they'd say, no, stupid, like, where, where are your parents from? And I'd say, well, let me just alter this answer and say, well, I'm Jamaican. And they say, no, stupid, you don't sound Jamaican. <laughs> you can't be Jamaican or you don't look like the Jamaicans uh, I imagine. And actually you might look more like these people on this other island, you know, a couple islands over from Jamaica. And so I wanted to, um, you know, I'd never read about that ex experience even though I'd had that experience growing up. And so I wanted to kind of explore that in the, in the prose. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what your characters do, right? I mean, it is sort of a search for, you know, sort of identity in its truest right, sense, exactly. right? In the book right. and, and that question, but it's a it's a violent question in a way, right? Mm -hmm. To ask someone, it's like a, it's aggressive in a way that maybe people mm -hmm. don't understand. I think you talk Absolutely. about that in the book, right? Right, yeah. I think people uh, think that they're owed an answer, first of all, and then it's it goes beyond just that um, assumption that, that they they can get the answer from you at any time and in, in any given context, and then they can simultaneously deny you <laughs> whatever you're, you know, if you go so far as to answer the question, they can also deny you whatever your, your answer is. And so it's, um, it, it's a confusing thing for Trelawney, and he searches out the answer thinking that he can be settled in one answer, hopefully, so he can be in a sense, settled in his own body and, and, and in a sense, find a, a kind of um, belonging or, or, or even safety at times because, uh, you know, it's, it's a book about Miami um, 
as much as it is about, you know, this, this immigrant family and Miami is a very multicultural place and people often want to know how they're supposed to relate to you based on exactly what culture it is that you're taking part in. And for him, it, he's, he has a, um, he, he, he can't quite find the solid grounds that might uh, allow for, I guess, a simpler uh, experience as he, as he moves throughout the world and it's really the world of Miami. Yeah. Yeah. And the person asking is really uncomfortable until they get that answer. Right. You exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. I, I think there's a, a lot of truth to um, truth to that. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, that's a memory I've had from growing up in Miami. And then I'll, I'll be in Miami for a week and I'll, you know, I'll be asked that question. What, what are you? And it's like, are we really, really yeah. 2022? Really? We're still doing that. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. And people are trying to find, you know, how to, because I mean, the the truth of the the matter is, Miami is this beautiful, uh, I mean, visually gorgeous uh, landscape, and and it's beautiful because we have all of these cultures. There are t at times where you know some ethnicities feel very comfortable um, get, getting uh, interacting with others, and then there may be certain groups that historically have not gotten along, and they want to know, can you can you get along with? If they see you, they want to know, can I get along with you? And it doesn't matter who you are as a person, as a as a full, fully, uh, you know, realized adult moving through the world who has your own set of values. They want to know, but where are your people from, and can I get along with with you based on that? Yeah, I love that. And then I was also taken sort of midway through the book. Trelawney's saying. Um, He's dealing with this question and then he's walking around he's in miami beach and uh he's he's there's a sentence you say more often they drunkenly slur what are you to which the hostesses smile and name their country of origin and then you wrote these dickheads are just that for asking but i linger when they do because i also want to know right right absolutely i mean he it, it, it's something that he internalizes for himself in a sense People are kind of obsessed with knowing that question, what are you? And he, at a certain point, at a certain age, once he's actually able to have more agency as a, a young adult and then just as an adult, um, that question kind of lingers with him. And so he's searching for it in himself, but then he starts to, in a sense, even look for that in, in other people. And something I, I talk about is the fact that he has this kind of, he's, he's, he's Black in America, but he also has this multi-generationally mixed heritage as well. And so that also sets him up to um, be identified uh, in, in, in different ways or misidentified or um, he, people approach him with that same kind of curiosity. And so when he sees other mixed people, he starts to be a little bit interested in the, you know, what answers they might be able to provide, you know. Uh, and so it's, it's, he's, I love him because he's such a, uh, a flawed character who's, who sometimes um, internalizes uh, things that he, sh he shouldn't. Um, or he might maybe, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> maybe shouldn't. Right. But I mean, at this point in his life, um, this is actually segueing perfectly into what I'd love to ask you about next, which is he really talks about these two dreams that he has. Um, so the first one is, right, he wants to go to college and he wants to get a job, right, and find his ticket to this life. Um, so he goes to college, um, but then he can't get a job and he can't, right, he's living in his car for a while. Um, 
and I would love to hear you talk about that. I mean, I think it's brave to talk about, you know, homelessness. And um, you have this one sentence where he says, the best thing about a job is having a toilet on which to sit and unload your twisted, clogged up colon without having to fake like you're planning to buy the double McFuckery with fries. Right. <laughs> I, that is such, I love that sentence because, you know, you think about, oh, well, people who are, you know, who don't have a home, maybe they're hungry or cold or whatever, but you don't talk about the toilet, right? Needing a place right, right. to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. right, right. Absolutely. I mean, a line like that comes from, well, just to, to, for people who haven't read the book, um, we were talking earlier about his search for belonging, his search for uh, finding his identity. And it's at, at the time where he decides that he's going to reclaim his Jamaicanness, his Jamaican identity, um, that he has this falling out with his father because his father kind of denies him of his his uh, proper Jamaicanness. His father calls him a, a tourist for having just visited the, the island over uh, the course of a summer. And um, this falling out happens at the time where Chelani has come back home from college thinking that because he's got a bachelor's degree in English literature, that's gonna uh, basically reward him with a job. And, and uh, unfortunately for him, it, it happens at the time of the uh, 2008 recession. And um, he's not able to find that job very quickly. And his father puts him out of the house. So he's living out of his SUV. And um, he winds up applying for a job at a government subsidized elderly housing community. And, and that's where he's making this statement about, you know, he's finally found a job again and he's not housed yet. He's still living out of his car, but at least now he has a toilet that he can use. And I mean, that line was kind of inspired with inspired by, you know, at a time where I was working multiple jobs and trying to finish college. And I was often, um, you know, working so much that I wouldn't necessarily see home for days because I had to get from work, uh, work, well, work to school, back to work, and there was no way I was actually going to make it home, and I'd have to, you know, try to catch a nap either on, on a college bench or in my car in the 95 degree heat, and if it was college, it was okay. I might just take a shower at the fitness center, but if I were away from campus, um, often I'd find myself, you know, especially like working out on the uh, the, the beach, if I couldn't get to work first, you know, the, the, you can't get, you can't get into these restrooms unless you're a paying customer and thinking about how I'd be, you know, stuck out without being able to, to do different things like take a shower or use the bathroom and, um, and the, you know, the various uh, indignities that that uh, being in that position kind of puts you in and, um, you know, and, and so having that kind of access was, uh, I mean, it's, it's something I thought a lot about in a, in a, in a sense. And so um, I, I have uh, Trelawney considering, you know, such a, such a thing. Yeah. I mean, it was very real and um, I hadn't read someone bringing that to life in that way before, right? It's those small details that make it real right. and so compelling. And I think that's what people are responding to because that's throughout the book. You really did a fantastic job. Um, so, but you talk about, right, he ends up in this position because he has a falling out with his father. So I want right. to go to one of the big themes of this book, which is fatherhood, right? Right, um, absolutely. And you have, um, again, one of my favorite sentences here. Um, I, I'm probably going to sound terrible when I read this, but it goes, every boy deserves to believe him father is good. But if each father were good, we'd be living in a different kind of world. You see me? 
And then you mm-hmm. wrote, what kind of man abandons his son? Mm-hmm. And that, and right. And so fatherhood as a theme, can you talk about, you know, how you were thinking about it and, and its role in the book? Yeah, I, I absolutely was, was thinking about fathers and um, the, the roles that they play in their, their children's lives and um, different kinds of fathers. You, you have the, the fathers like um, that, that, line that you just read is from a story called Splashdown, and that's um, featuring one of, we've been talking about Trelawney, and this is Trelawney's cousin now, Cookie, who's dealing with the problems that he's having with his father. He was abandoned by his father um, from birth, more or less, and he meets him for the first time uh, in the Florida Keys when, in the summer, he turns 13, and um, so to me, there was that kind of scale of the, the father who abandons his child, you know, and what, what, you know, what's behind such a thing? And can you ever come back from such a betrayal um, from the looking at it from the, the, the son's point of view? Is there any way you could possibly rebuild trust? And then I wanted to look at it from, you know, the father, a father more like Chelani's who wasn't the most present. He was often, you know, he would go missing on weekends and at nights and, and you know, the poor mother, uh, Sonia would have to pull out the address book because this is 1980s and you know and call people and say you know <laughs> right. has he died out on the street is he um is he just drunk at a party somewhere and the kids would have to get involved as, as well and so I wanted to look at these explore um if there's any way to repair these kinds of relationships because it's it's just something I I'm personally interested in how um how fathers can do better or in the, in the cases where they aren't going to do better like what gets passed down because sometimes sometimes you know I, I'm not a father but it, I am interested in that kind of question that um, the children of parents who who maybe didn't do the best job based on the the, 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 the child's um, perspective like how they imagine they're gonna grow up and be better and and undo the harm when they become parents and you know I, I look at a Delano character and you know, he's making mistakes as well, although he at least is imagining that he, you know, if he can get his finances back on track, that then he'll be able to get his boys back into his life. And so um, I guess I'm interested in kind of multi-generational um, lessons that are, are taught, both the good ones and the bad ones, and kind of unpacking those things and figuring out, you know, what, what works and what might not work so well. Yeah. But Delano, like Tony, all of them, they keep thinking, if only I can do this, everything will be fine. If only I can do that. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but it yeah, doesn't absolutely. quite work that way. It, it never does. I mean, I, I, I think maybe this is my worldview coming out on the page, but um, I, I wanted the book to have this kind of balance between the things that we can control and the things that we can't. And I wanted my characters have to have a lot of agency, but also show that they are you know, there the, people often make like the hurricane analogy um, or metaphor because there are literally a lot of hurricanes that um, are are either aiming their way at they're aimed at Miami or they're literally destroying Miami in this right. book. And um, and these characters are at times they're they're trying to make the best decisions they can um, when despite being in you know really. Uh, bad situations that they didn't necessarily create for themselves but what we also find with a character like Delano and, and Trelawney is that sometimes they're making decisions that are actually making their their, their bigger um, set of circumstances actually much worse um, than they they started out and so 
um, you know, I wanted to make them human feeling. So I wanted them to also be flawed and have control of, um, uh, of, of the mistakes, you know, own their mistakes in a sense. Yeah, I love it. So I want to talk about hurricanes, of course, but in a, but in a minute, because first, I just want to give you a huge shout out, because I don't know if you guys that are listening realize that I gave him two sentences, right? And Jonathan pulled out the story, the characters, right? He knew exactly where I was in this book. And I think a lot of people make a mistake of thinking he, you know, oh, it's an overnight success, this book, like, boom, all of a sudden he's bestseller, and you know, National Book Award nominee, all this. But I mean, you must have been through these pages, right? Like every author, 5,000 times each. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. That you could, yeah, you know. Yeah, I was working on this book for, for years and years and years. And um, every time I'm on a panel with uh, a, a novel, and, and, and I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I don't, I'm not coming for the novelist, trust me, but sometimes <laughs> there'll be a novelist who will say, you know, a novel's different because with a story, you just kind of write it and then you put it out and you forget about it and, you know, as though you're just going to write a story in two weeks and, and then get it published the day later. And right. for me, you know, I've worked on these stories for years and years. People yeah. were born during the writing of these stories. People <laughs> have died during the writing of these stories, um, you know. And so uh, I, I spent a lot of time on this book and yeah. it's been a long, long journey. Yeah, amazing and worth it. I think totally worth it. But Absolutely. give you one Absolutely. sentence and you know where you are. That was unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So I do want to move to the hurricanes. Um, I thought that one of you, you can tell I'm a fan of pulling out quotes and pieces of the book, right? Because I just love the writing so much. But one of my um, favorite descriptions that you wrote in here was about the hurricane and the aftermath of the hurricane. Um, I'm sure you'll know where I am in the book. As I read this to you, but you wrote just to give our listeners, you know, a sense of the beauty of the description and the language that you use here. What the archived pictures can't convey is that a decomposing palm tree, one that's been ripped from the earth and left in the road to die, smells as pitiful as a rotting human, or that even the inanimate innards of houses stink of loss, of soaked through death post-storm, and after a day or so, this rot stifled not just Cutler Ridge, but most of Miami. Yes. So can you talk about the theme of storms? Because of course we have two big ones in here. Yeah, you know, uh, growing up in Miami, I I was talking to um, uh, uh, owner of a a bookstore down here, uh, Mitchell Kaplan, a a few days ago. And, um, you know, it's it's, if you were here in Miami during, well, before 1990. Uh, two, you would have known about Hurricane Andrew and maybe lived through and experienced Hurricane Andrew. And it was such a devastating thing in the lives of people uh, from Miami, especially uh, people along the coast and in the, um, I'll say South Dade County. And it's this, uh, at one point, Delano calls it the uh, Christ event. It's the marker for before and after for, for residents of Miami. And um, I, I didn't think I could write about Miami without uh, having mention of, of Hurricane Andrew and, and hurricanes in general and how um, your life can be one thing one day and then just depending on the storm that hits one such as, you know, a category four, four or five, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it can change everything. It can destroy everything you have. And so that's what happens to this family. That's what happened to my family. And um, for for me, it was a, the event that kind of ended my my childhood in a sense, but it's something that Trelawney is looking at um, as 
in, in, in multiple stories and Delano as, as well, they're, they're looking back on this moment that um, in a sense, like they had uh, this kind of happy-ish, <laughs> adventure-ish uh, uh, experience in their neighborhood where they were kind of fighting off these neighborhood animals and they were dealing with nature. There's at one point, you know, crabs are coming through in the thousands and they're, they're collecting crabs with their mom's uh, uh, mopping pail and, um, and, and, and they're dealing with millipedes oh, and these, yep. these birds, these night hawks that are attacking them as they try to walk the dog around the block. And then um, it's this final kind of act of nature in a sense that, uh, that they, they can't fight. They can kind of run from and hide from that they can't fight and it, and it changes everything in, in their lives. Um, I think, especially for Chelani in a sense. And um, I wanted that kind of, that sense that, you know, no matter what decisions you're making, there, there always might be this thing that's looming, you know, that could, that could strike. Uh, Maybe not at any time with a hurricane, but it could kind of, you know, it could form quickly enough and 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 change the course of your life. And you know, again, that's a worldview of somebody who actually lived through such an event. But I thought it was important to 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 have that on on the page. Yeah, I mean, I think it did end the childhood for your characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then it also created opportunity for someone like Topper, because Topper's business right. as someone who's in kind of like in construction. Right. Uh, it takes off because now houses have to be rebuilt. And we see Delano try to, in a sense, replicate that when Hurricane Irene is coming from Miami right. and he's trying to get his tree service back on track. And he's going to convince this property owner to give him a job right before the hurricane hits. And we see things kind of go a different way for him. Yeah. I love it. All right, so I'd like to shift gears for the last few minutes here and just ask you, um, what was the hardest part about getting this book published and getting your stories published? Uh, I got in my head a lot about that question of, you know, is this gonna be a novel? Is this gonna be a story collection? Like stories, novel and stories, what are we gonna call it? Uh, the thing that is a challenge, I think when you're writing a book like this is, okay, I write the first story in flux, not necessarily in that order, but I have in flux. The second story now, what am I am I world building from scratch again? Am I assuming that somebody read Influx before they get to Under the Aki Tree, the second story? And um, that was really uh, mentally taxing. And I think I, I had to, um, in a sense, just write the best stories I could, put them together, and then go through and and go through with my agent and go through with my my editor at FSG and, and my editor at Fourth Estate and you know and and come to decisions in a sense and you know people still might think oh well that could have come out or or maybe you could have reminded us of, of this thing but um I think you know trying to solve that puzzle it was kind of like a Rubik's cube because everything every time I, I put something in something else had to shift or come out every time something came out something had to go back in in another place and, and that was a really big challenge for me yeah well it came out beautifully work in the end um, <laughs> Thanks. and so my last question listeners are often uh writers aspiring writers what kind of advice do you have for people who may be just starting out or who are well into their journey mm. uh i think uh you know keep keep reading a lot you know if you can yes. if yes. you can read before so so writer's block i find is it happens the most for me um, when I'm one, I'm facing a blank page. I like to write in the morning these days. So if I know in the morning, there's a blank page that I have to be facing, that's a terrifying prospect. Um, 
And so I like to do two things. If I read before bed, oftentimes I'm reminding myself, even in my dreams, that literature is important and that taking part in literature is important. And then I tend to wake up in a better space to, to go, ahead, go ahead and attack the page. Another thing I like to do is actually, because I'm always clipping things out of my stories, I don't delete them. I put them in another file on my computer. And sometimes there'll be, let's say, an interesting character who didn't quite make the cut for one story, I might go back and really re-explore that character in another story. And sometimes just that idea that, you know, I'm taking something I already have and moving forward with that, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's easier to imagine doing that. I love that. Like, you don't know what kind of gems you still have in there, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. could come out. Right, um, right. So for people who love this book, which will probably be everyone who reads it, do you, have, do you want to talk about what's coming next? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm working on a novel. Um, it also is set in Miami. There are also Jamaican-American characters in it. Good, and we want more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's all I'll, I'll say for right now. Uh, it, it, but I constantly write stories uh, in my head and on my phone. And so I, I hope to be continuing to put some of those out uh, as well. Right, like writing is not just when you're sitting down in front of your computer and typing, exactly. right? It's like any time yeah. you're doing something, you might get an idea or something. Exactly, I'm walking around bumping into things because I'm, <laughs> I'm writing in my head. <laughs> I love that. All right, well, Jonathan, thank you so, so much for joining us here on the very first episode of Check This Out at the Howe Library. I absolutely love your book, If I Survive You. Good luck, I hope you win the National Book Award and everything else that you're up for. I absolutely think this is just a gorgeous, gorgeous collection. Everyone should read it. You should check it out of your local library or the Howe Library or go buy it at your local bookstore. May you sell many, many copies. Coming up Thank next you. in this, you are welcome. Coming up next in this series on October 12th, we have Kelly Ford and her amazing book, Real Bad Things. Yes, this book was so, so good. It also just came out. So you can check that out at the Howe Library or buy a copy at your local bookstore. Um, listeners, we just want to thank the Howe Library Corporation one more time. I will see you again on October 12th. Jonathan, thank you. Big shout out to our producers today, Megan Coleman and Jared Jenish. They did an amazing job. Thank you to Ruby Simon, the library director. Join us next time. Thank you so, so much.